Welcome to Vendée Radio. Today I am joined by an esteemed guest, one of my favourite historians, certainly I think one of the most perceptive historians writing today, Mr Henry Sear. Mr Henry Sear was uh, born in 1949 in Barcelona to a family of French ancestry and was educated in England at Stonyhurst College and then at Exeter College, Oxford, where he took a degree in modern history. Since then, his career as an historian has led to the publication of, I think, six books on Catholic history and biography, including one of the famous English Jesuit writer and philosopher father, Martin Darcy, as well as an official history of the Knights of Malta. He has also become personally acquainted with many figures in the Vatican, including cardinals and curial officials, together with journalists specialising in Vatican affairs. Mr. Sear, good evening. Good evening. I summarised there a, a little bit of your career, but tonight what I was interested in interviewing you about was your history of the making, unmaking and restoration or beginning of the convalescence of Catholic tradition, your book from 2014, Angelico Press, Phoenix from the Ashes. And Phoenix from the Ashes contains part one, 170-page summary of the history of the church and Christian civilization, which I have found to be very insightful. And for, for those of, of my generation, I would very much commend that work because we were not the recipients of a Catholic view of history, which is so important. The, uh, the Christian religion being the animating principle of what, what has come to be called Western civilization. And that 170-page summary gives a very robust introduction to the entire history of the church from the apostolic period until the conciliar crisis. And within that, I think one section which particularly enlightened me was regarding the the Counter-Reformation and the Baroque civilization. As English Catholics, um, we tend to think of Christendom as sort of terminating with the, the fracturing of Christendom and the Reformation, but actually, as you elucidate in Phoenix and the Ashes, that was the end of what could be called Christianitis Maior, major Christendom, greater Christendom, but a continuation of Christianitis minor, lesser Christendom, particularly in, in southern Europe, the, the Catholic lands. And there was a great flowering of civilization here with the, the Baroque. So, Mr. Sig, could you perhaps provide a sketch for us of the, the achievement of the Counter-Reformation, the Reformed Church, and then um, the, the Baroque civilization in the temporal sphere? I wanted to make a case in my book for... Um, what you might call Tridentine civilization, because nowadays, uh, especially since the um, Second Vatican Council, Tridentine is used uh, in a disparaging sense. You know, anything that's Tridentine is uh, supposed to, supposed to be uh, uh, thereby some sort of corruption. So uh, th the fact is that uh, modern many modern historians uh, have uh, brought out the achievements and the virtues of, of of that civilization, but it hasn't really penetrated the um, the, the consciousness of um, 
uh, 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 Christians or Catholics nowadays. So I, I wanted to bring out uh, the, the way in which this was uh, one of the, I, I would say, one of the two great ages of the church. The first being the uh, the High Middle Ages, and uh, after uh, uh, after a dip in the later Middle Ages, you get this resurgence of culture, uh, making the Tridentine period one of the two great uh, periods of the Church. Uh, of course, if one were asked to uh, give a disquisition on on the whole of uh, the whole of uh, Counter Reformation uh, culture, um, uh, that would be a very demanding task indeed. Well, as as you say, the the revitalization of of Catholic culture is is obviously um, a great fruit of the the Council of Trent. I mean, perhaps first, could you uh, say something about the the Reformed Church? It, you know, we talk about Counter Reformation, but in a sense, it is the the true Reformation, the the, the Catholic Ref- Reformation, as opposed to the the Protestant Revolution. And how, as you say in your book, was actually a, was a time of saints. Yes. Yes, uh, of course, uh, um, years ago, um, uh, English Catholics uh, used to say the so-called Reformation uh, and uh, the, 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 the term counter-reformation is also, I believe, a, a, a Protestant coinage. Uh, the implication being that uh, it was simply a, uh, a reaction against the, uh, against the Reformation, as you say. Um, yes, the, the Counter-Reformation was a, was a positive movement in its own right. Uh, the uh, Council of Trent was one of the great reforming councils of, of the Church. It, it, it reformed the, uh, the training of clergy, it uh, defined uh, Catholic doctrine, and in particular the practice of the sacraments uh, more precisely, and, and, it, um, and it gave rise to um, this great flowering. And yes, the, 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 the saints, um, uh, saints such as uh, St. Robert Bellamin, who was also one of the great intellectual uh, figures of the time. And then you have the, the whole crowd of saints who uh, distinguish the um, Catholic uh, revival in France. Yes, certainly. And I think your work resonates with um, the history of, uh, of Christendom or the... Um, the dividing of Christendom is uh, Christopher Dawson's collection of essays. There, um, the uh, identification, as he, as he says, of the the galaxy of saints in uh, in France at that time, um, tremendous achievement. And what you also see with this flowering is a burst of creative energy and an incredible volume of material culture, musical culture. Uh, with the Baroque civilization, which is intimately tied to this revived spirituality. Uh, the artist Gian Lorenzo Bernini was a, fr- a frequent um, retreatant, and he practiced the spiritual exercise of St. Ignatius. Uh, Rubens was a, a daily mass goer. Could you say something about the the material culture of Baroque civilization? Yes, uh, th- this is the point that... Um... Kenneth Clark uh, makes in his series uh, Civilization. I don't know whether people uh, ever watch that nowadays. The, what, what seems astonishing to a modern man is that uh, artists in those days were, were religious believers. But th- this is the, the great contrast between that age and, uh, uh, and the modern age. Uh, <clears throat> in those days, 
an artist was a creator. Nowadays, the assumption is that uh, an artist is a rebel and mm. by implication a, a destroyer. Well, naturally, if you have a culture in which the great artists, uh, artists are uh, creators, you're going to have a much more cohesive and a much more creative uh, culture than we have today. Yes, exactly. It's the integration of the, the whole human person and testimony to, to that anthropology is, as you say, the, the revivified material culture of Baroque civilization, which in a, is in a sense the synthesis of the, the baptizing of the, the recoverable humanist elements of the Renaissance with the transcendence of the Gothic period. With the, the splendor of, of Baroque art, you say, gives, gives rise to churches, uh, which are a, a theater which present the fullness of Catholic spirituality, a, a, sac a sacrum uh, theatrum against the bare word of Protestantism. Sacred music conquered new fields with Vittoria and Palestrina. The Jesuits, the greatest of the Counter-Reformation orders, transformed Catholic education, setting up throughout Europe a system of schools for boys such as had not existed in the Middle Ages, except to a small extent in England. By the 17th century, they were producing a host of the most eminent men of their age by rank and genius, and through their work, the political and intellectual culture of the time absorbed the most contemporary expression of the church's philosophy and spirituality. And what comes across in your, your, your very uh, evocative chronicling of the achievements of Baroque civilization is the, the confidence the church had in, in leading civilization. And I think you, you make the point that this was really the last period where the church was, was really at the forefront of the achievements of civilization. Is, is there anything you could say to that? Well, I, I did want to make that point because uh, people in general uh, tend to represent the, uh, the church as uh, merely survival at that time. Um, and, and in particular, uh, an obscurantist force in the, uh, in the case of Galileo, etc. And the, the reality is exactly the opposite. Hmm. Uh, if anything, it was, the, uh, it was the opponents of Galileo who had the more rational uh, philosophy, whereas Galileo was 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 um, uh, promoting a, a rather incoherent um, uh, new view of science, uh, which which hadn't been uh, properly worked out. He he uh, he, he hadn't uh, related uh, the uh, aspect of, of gravity to his. Uh, view of the uh, of a heliocentric universe or at least a heliocentric uh, solar system um, and you know the, the the great leaders of culture at that time were were catholics um, and i think this is particularly important in the in the intellectual field of course we um we we we, we can see uh, in the case of the painters and uh, and architects, or we can hear in the case of the uh, of the musicians, the uh, the uh, artistic productions of that period. But it, it was the the way in which um, uh, the Counter Reformation period w was able to refine the tradition of St Thomas Aquinas uh, with the uh, 
with the work of Francisco Suarez uh, and uh, present this as a, as a, what you might call a fresh philosophy for its own period. Uh, th this is what gave it such, uh, such impetus at the time. Yes, quite. And the, the school of Salamanca is marked as, a, as informing the juridical framework for the literally the creation of an entirely new civilization in, in the new world which as a project is quite in contrast to Protestant colonization, which tended to revolve around exploitation and commercial profit. Yes, quite. Uh, um, the Salamanca school has been completely ignored. Most people don't even know about it. Um, the, the University of Salamanca created a great um, school of economists uh, they've been completely ignored by uh, by modern writers. It's assumed that uh, economics was invented by the British in the 18th century. So in, in ways like that, the uh, achievement of the counter-reformation culture have, uh, have been completely disparaged. Yes, and you say, just to, to capitalise that, that these achievements mark an age in which the Catholic Church not merely kept pace with contemporary civilization, but continued to lead it. Any observer of the European scene in 1618 and still more in 1630 would have found that despite a century of Protestant revolt, Catholic culture was unmistakably in the ascendant. In that culture, moreover, the Church was no residual presence. It led society in the arts, in abstract thought and the secular the sciences. For this reason and others, the Tridentine period, which may be seen in its full flowering in the first third of the 17th century, deserves to be ranked among the great epochs of the Church. If we compare it with the High Middle Ages, we see on the one hand more worldliness, but also an increase in maturity and discernment in every sphere, not least in the art of the time. The reaching for heaven that the Gothic embodied in soaring arches, in arches was now expressed by frescoed vaults and domes, in which the imagery is always glorious. Gone are the depictions of hell and the dance macabre of medieval imagery. The implication is that recourse to the church's sacramental treasure makes bliss, rather than the terrors of death, the object of the Christian's expectation. Suffering is still there in the crucifixes, the martyrdoms and the dolors of Our Lady, but the appeal is not to fear and horror, but to p pity, sympathy and reverence. And that's a, a, a wonderful description there. And for me, that called to mind the, the sculpture by Gian Lorenzo Bernini of the ecstasy of Saint Teresa, herself a great counter-reformation saint. And looking, gazing on that sculpture in Rome, I, I thought that that was the embodiment, in a sense, of the Baroque spirit in, in marble. That is, the soul's passionate love affair with God. Yes, well, of course, uh, Bernini was an incomparable sculptor. Uh, and, that's, and that's one of his his greatest works, yes. Um, I think you're right. And we will explore the Thirty Years' War, and what you call the high watermark, in a sense, of the Counter-Reformation. But I, I did want to just quickly ask you that this is the last period, or to put it another way, in the 18th century, you see the, the apostasy of the elites, by and large, you know, with notable exceptions. And the revival of the 19th century never, I think, as you put it, it, it doesn't reach the sort of political sphere, at least 
the, those elites. It doesn't re- recapture the elites, so, so to speak. Is is that something you would you could offer any insight on? Uh, yes, um, it depends what you mean by elites. Uh, um, uh, you have some very prominent uh, figures who were uh, touched by the Catholic revival. Uh, obviously, the great majority were not. Quite, quite. And I think, yes, that the, the commitment and the zeal of the elites to in this Baroque achievement is, is a, a large part of the, the reason for its vitality, because you see that integral Catholic society in those, those Catholic countries collaborating in a, in a harmonic organicity. So to move on to the, the Thirty Years' War, because this Counter-Reformation, as you describe, was propelled by the, the work of the missionary orders and the teaching orders and reforming clergy and the establishment of seminaries, but it was also furthered by, by the tercios, by pike and shot, by, by military chivalric prowess particularly in Central Europe. And this leads to what you call the high watermark of the the Catholic advance in the 1630s. Could you offer something of description on that? Well, the the, the point in my my treatment of that was that um, until the Thirty Years' War, uh, um, Protestantism had advanced through uh, political means. And although the, the Catholic culture had revived enormously, it was still held back, back by these uh, political uh, conditions. And the Thirty Years' War gave the opportunity to, to reverse that, to, to bring about a recovery of, um, of, 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 um, of Catholicism. And not through any aggression on the part of the, the Catholic side, on the contrary, uh, the the Thirty Years' War was uh, triggered by um, uh, Frederick's uh, attempt to g- get himself um, elected um, King of Bohemia, uh, and that was a complete failure. And so the early stages of the um, Thirty Years' War consisted in the collapse of uh, Protestant aggression against the against the Catholic world, and uh, for a time the the, the Catholics were successful. And as I say, what um, really stands out about this period is this completely unnatural and unpredictable uh, religious treason of France under Cardinal Richelieu. Uh, You you might have expected uh, France at least to have remained neutral or even to have helped the the Catholic powers, uh, Spain and Austria, But but the opposite happened. Under Cardinal Richelieu, uh, France threw its weight onto the Protestant side, and it was this completely unnatural uh, intervention in history which brought about the, the the collapse of Catholic power in Europe, and eventually the um, the, the retreat of Catholic culture, uh, intellectual culture, uh, spiritual culture, and uh, artistic culture. And that treason was motivated, in a sense, by by jealousy, Bourbon jealousy of the the Habsburg family. It's a sort of inter 
familial rivalry, a, a rivalry particularly with Habsburg Spain. And I believe that Richelieu developed even a theology to justify this opposition to Catholic interests. Uh, well, I don't associate Richelieu very much with theology. <laughs> uh, obviously, uh, um, uh, Richelieu was uh, following the uh, political interests of France, and his objective was to exalt the uh, French monarchy. But you would have uh, thought that uh, as a um, as a cardinal he, and a bishop, he would have put uh, religious uh, considerations first. Yes, I, I believe he wrote some treatises about how God wills the, the diversity of, of nations to reflect his splendor and his perfections. And so the, the hegemony of one nation, one power is, is somehow contrary to his will. I, I, you know, this is a retrospective justification of that perfidy, but it's, it's quite interesting. He sort of did craft something there. I was completely unaware of that. Of course, I, 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 um, I'm thoroughly in favour of the idea that uh, France should have its own uh, should have its own character, its own place in in Europe. But uh, I don't see that that involves um, uh, taking the Protestant side in a uh, a European conflict between Catholicism and Protestantism. Yes, quite. And you have a a very interesting section in your book comparing the power of the culture of Baroque Spain and that of Baroque France in the 17th century. As a, a sort of vignette of that comparison, you offer the, the, the contrast between the surrender of Breda, the painting by Diego Velasquez, which embodies magnanimity, the, the acceptance of the Dutch surrender by General Spinola, is an incredibly noble depiction of the the thoroughly Catholic spirit of the, of Hispanidad. Yes, uh, uh, um, uh, shall I read that passage uh, to you, or or will you read it? Uh, I I do put these things much better in print than I do by the spoken word. A telling example is the surrender of Breda by Velasquez, celebrating one of Spain's victories in the war against the Dutch. It is a painting whose emphasis is on the personal scale and the poignancy, the poignancy of defeat. The noble horse that dominates the right of the picture bears no triumphant hero. The victor has got off his high horse. Almost in the background, we see the victorious general Spinola in sober black armor, he is almost dwarfed, not only by the upright Spanish lances behind him, but even by the dejected Dutch soldiers on the left. His effacement is increased by the humane gesture by which he stoops to embrace his Dutch opponent, a true incident, to soften his, his humiliation as the keys of the city are, are surrendered. If the picture is a celebration of victory, it is of the humility and decency of victory. Comparing this scene with the prancing pomposity of any of Louis XIV's battle pictures, we can see the nature of the moral change that came over Europe through the passing of its hegemony from Spain to France. That's a very vivid description there, Mr. Sear. Thank you. Um, well, you, 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 
you get a sense of this moral change, uh, change uh, so much better from a work of art than you do from, you know, from a book. Yes, quite. And that's another reason to commend your, your history is that you, you write about not only political and religious developments, but also aesthetic and economic developments. So it is, I, I would commend it as being a, a truly universal panorama in that sense. Something Christopher Dawson writes about is that there is, as you say, a, a sort of first high watermark of, of Catholic ascendancy, which is which is curtailed by the betrayal of France. But then there is a, a second Catholic high watermark in the 1670s, so later in the century. And he describes how this, this decade saw the, well, and since the 1680s actually, saw the repulse of the Mohammedan threat in in Austria in particular, and sending, sending those armies into reverse. And also the Edict of Fontainebleau, which was the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and the, the, the ascendancy of, of Louis XIV, which is nevertheless corrupted by an etatisme, a statism, a centralization. But you also see the, the, some of the positive influence of the later Stuart kings in, in England as well. So could you say something maybe about this period and also about the, the tragedy of the Stuart dynasty with its, its project to, to, in a sense, reverse some of the, the Protestant bourgeois corruptions of, of uh, British culture? Uh, well, uh, to, to go back to the um, period of the Thirty Years' War, uh, the, the, the point I make was that this was a, a quite unforeseeable reversal of what seemed to be the natural course uh, of history at the time. And the, uh, the effects that would have followed if there had been a Catholic uh, victory in the, in the Thirty Years' War are incalculable. But it also has a, a less well-known uh, consequence in English history because uh, the... The English Civil War was started by the failure of Charles I to suppress the um, uh, Scottish rebellion against the uh, imposition of a, of a new prayer book. Now, it's, it's not generally recognized that that Scottish rebellion was, was, was made possible, really, by the influx of uh, Scottish troops, Protestant troops, and material of war from Sweden at the time. Now, if Sweden had been uh, had been routed uh, in the Thirty Years' War, that intervention would, would not have been possible. So probably Charles I would have defeated the Scottish rebellion. And um, the civil war, the, the, the whole of the, the long parliament and the civil war would not have, uh, would not have taken place at all. So hmm. one, one can go back to that as part of the Stuart tragedy. Now, um, as far as the 1670s and 80s are concerned, I, I, I'm not a great uh, uh, um, advocate of uh, Charles II or James II. Um, uh, uh, James II was an extremely stupid king, uh, politically at least, and um, a, um, 
a more prudent king might have succeeded in in establishing a Catholic dynasty on the English throne. So yes, it, it was a tragedy, but um, the, this was a, a sort of personal tragedy rather than what you might call a cultural one. Yes, I, I my understanding of, of James II is that he, in a sense he was, although his intentions may have been correct, he's, he was somewhat enamoured of the growing sort of absolutists tendencies of Louis XIV and wanted to uh, emulate that that regalism in the United Kingdom and could have been, as you say, more prudent and savvy in how he went about trying to establish a Catholic dynasty. Yes, but, but obviously the conditions simply weren't there to uh, establish uh, absolutism in England. The uh, French monarchy was was by nature far stronger than than the English monarchy was after the Civil War. Um, uh, James II's stupidity uh, lay in the fact that he totally failed to recognise that. And then you have the Jacobite counter-revolution that survives after William of Orange usurps the English throne in the so-called Glorious Revolution in 1688, which Dawson describes as as the, the greatest Protestant victory since the, the Thirty Years' War. And he also says that the, the deeper meaning, significance of the, the Jacobite movement into the 18th century is that the main threat to the Whig oligarchic crowned republic state, the English state of the 18th century, was from the right, a later term for the French Revolution, but... That is to say that it acted as an anchor to halt the the leftward slide that you could observe in France, where the kings, and particularly some of their courtiers, like Madame de Pompadour, flirted with the, the philosophe and obviously eventually suppressed the Jesuits, which was to, to sort of sign their own death warrant. Yes, I, 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 I don't see quite the point that uh, that you quote from Christopher Dawson. Uh, he's saying that um, the Jacobite movement uh, prevented a, a drift to the left in uh, English politics? Yes, in the sense that for the Whig ruling class, the threat they had to worry about to their power was from a kind of Tory Jacobitism. And so they, that exerted a conservative influence on their on their politics. They didn't carry out the kind of revolutionary changes to you know the legal system and the life of of politics in that country in the way that you you could see in the on the continent because there the threat wasn't from the left but it was from the right so they couldn't go to the left because then the right would would ha- would be more appealing well perhaps because you knew more about early 18th century wiggery than i do um i i i wouldn't have thought there was um any great uh, temptation to uh, to move to the left uh, at that period? Uh, I, I would have said that the, um, the 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 whole thrust of that period, or in fact, thrust is completely the wrong word, uh, is is to is to as uh, Walpole's uh, motto was: "Let sleeping dogs lie." To hmm. to simply allow uh, existing institutions. Uh, to remain as they uh, as they were, I wouldn't have thought that there there was really a drive in uh, 
in Whiggery to, um, uh, to, to make any sort of left-wing reforms. Uh, I, I, I don't think Locke was a, was, was a very dynamic um, uh, political philosopher as far as the politics of, of his own uh, time were concerned. In, a, in other words, his, his system was regarded as, as justifying the, uh, the uh, uh, early Hanoverian uh, political system. Uh, and uh, it didn't seem to call for any any movement of reform. Yes, that's interesting. I, I think it's a speculative speculative point that Dawson makes. But as you say, those thinkers were looking to entrench the property gains of the the ruling class. Um, well, precisely that that enormous emphasis of the Whigs on on property was was a was a conservative emphasis. Yes. They, were, they were trying to preserve the the, the power of the pop- propertied classes. Yes, which which were the the gains, the ill-gotten gains of the the theft of monastic property in the the sixteenth century. Yes, um, to, and and the further theft of the property of the peasantry in the in the um, enclosures of the commons. Indeed, yes. Which Charles I was doing something to try and redress, I believe, in the uh, Court of the Star Chamber. Yes, that's right, yes. Yes, this narrative that we have, this Whig history, that Charles was a tyrant and it was a um, popular uprising against him at the English Civil War is quite a distortion. It's totally false, yes. Uh, uh, the, um, the, the English Civil War was, uh, was a rebellion of the propertied classes, against uh, Charles I. And we have, with the, the sort of fragmentation of Christendom, this clear divide that you outline in your book between Catholic Europe and Protestant Europe, Baroque culture, and what becomes Protestant bourgeois culture, particularly in the Netherlands and then in England, Northern Germany, Scandinavia, and then the beginning of the secularization of culture. Could you say something about this, the, the kind of the weakening of Protestantism, the sickening of the European soul and the contrast between the, the Protestant culture and the Baroque culture? Yes, you're asking me very broad questions. Um, the, 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 the point that I make is that um, uh, as soon as uh, Protestantism had won its victory in the Thirty Years' War, its, its religious impulse faded and its aspect as a secular, as a secularizing movement took over. Uh, there, there was no longer any need for that uh, religious impulse and therefore the Protestant cultures became uh, secularist cu- cultures. And of course there was a great advance of, um, uh, of, of skeptical thought. Um, uh, I also make the point that this uh, uh, involved uh, a, a fragmentation of, uh, of what ought to be uh, the essence of a civilization. The essence of a civilization should, should uh, uh, consist in a, a harmonization of the creative and the, and the rational, you might say. Uh, uh, the, the creative including, including the... Um, the, the the spiritual, and with uh, Protestant civilization, you got a breaking of that har- harmony, so that uh, um, uh, science uh, becomes dominant 
and uh, um, creative, uh, imaginative cre creation uh, recedes. And concurrent with that, very much tied up with it, is the rise of the Protestant economics. You have Calvin's seeming aperture that he opens for the legalization of usury, Henry VIII's, uh, one of his you know, government's final acts within his reign in the 1540s is to, again, relax the usury laws. What role does the, the kind of the rise of the money power here have for what you call the, the fundamental perversion taking hold in the, the Protestant societies? Yes, the, the great force uh, in that respect was the, was the rise of Holland. Uh, this was the first uh, um, unbridled um, capitalist uh, country, capitalist society. And uh, that was taken up very quickly by England. So, um, yes, you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned Calvin, for example. Uh, um, uh, that that uh, has its own significance. But, but what, what, uh, what gave real force to this advance of capitalism was uh, the the rise of the Dutch and uh, English economies? Yes, and I think it's it's interesting that the the wealth of Baroque culture it was largely from the the bullion of America, whereas the the wealth of Protestant culture was 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 through the through commerce and and money itself uh, from sort of making money breed. And you see that basically the, the Amsterdam Bourse is kind of the, you know, one of the first stock exchanges. And then the way that these sort of capitalistic financial instrument techniques are transposed to England with the so-called Glorious Revolution. And then the beginning of the, the Bank of England in the 18th century, which opens lines of credit, which allow for far greater financial clout on the part of the Protestant powers and the Catholic powers, which means that they... Britain continues to have great success against France in what's called the Second Hundred Years' War, from uh, 1688 all the way until the Battle of Waterloo. Yes. Um, yeah, yes, uh, you, you mentioned the, um, the, the import of bullion as, as part of the, uh, uh, as, as the reason for the, uh, the power of Spain. And this was, of course, a, a weakness in the Spanish economy, but we ought to... Uh, bear in mind that um, we, we shouldn't be regarding economic success as a, as a, as a sort of a criterion of a, a civilization's virtue, uh, quite the reverse. Uh, but I mean, it, it, is, it is a fact that the, um, the uh, Dutch and the British economies uh, were intrinsically more successful than the, than the Spanish one. Yes, I think that's a really good point. You get a lot of Catholics today who try and argue strongly against Max Weber's thesis of the um, Protestant work ethic and his argument that the Protestant religion creates the conditions for greater economic wealth within societies, comparing, broadly speaking, Northern Europe and Southern Europe, North America, South America. And actually, it, the, the response may be to say, yes, in a sense, he is right. Protestantism may lead to greater financial wealth, but does it lead to more just societies? 
Does it lead to greater charity? Does it lead to greater beauty? These far higher attributes of a uh, Christian society. Yes, we've got a sort of Opus Dei um, uh, movement in uh, Catholic uh, thought nowadays, where, where, whereby um, um, Catholic apologists, as they think themselves, uh, have completely espoused uh, capitalism. Well, uh, they, they, they don't seem to take an in the uh, social teaching of the church as, as uh, taught by um, Leo XIII and Pius XI. Uh, we, 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 we have a, a completely distorted uh, um, Catholic uh, apologetics as, as far as that, that, that is concerned. Uh, I, I think if you try and justify Catholicism on capitalist grounds or justify ca uh, capitalism on, on Catholic grounds, you're, you're, you're on totally the wrong lines. Quite, yes. It's, it's looking at the telescope through the wrong end. Are you familiar with, the, with Christopher Dawson's essay, Catholicism and the Bourgeois Mind? No, I'm not. Uh, you, you've appealed a great deal to Christopher Dawson. Uh, I, I should make the point that, uh, that my uh, uh, historical vision was um, uh, formed by a contemporary of his, Hilaire Belloc, now, I, I, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with Hilaire Belloc, but anybody who's read Hilaire Belloc would, would read my book and, and say, oh, well, that's Hilaire Belloc. Uh, but, but then uh, Belloc is not much read nowadays, so perhaps it wasn't a complete waste of, mine, uh, of time, my writing the book. Well, I have read Belloc and very much appreciate a lot of his work. I think that his, his narrative history is, is very helpful but there are some deficiencies, such as his treatment of the French Revolution, I think is a serious shortfall. I mean, for a Catholic not to identify that as one of the great ruptures and evils done uh, to, to Christendom is problematic, I think. Yes, he was a, he, he was a bit uh, incoherent there. He was a, a French Catholic who was also a French Republican. And um, uh, that, that, that doesn't make for a very harmonious philosophy. I, no, I, I, I don't regard myself as a 100% uh, follower of Belloc, but what I'm saying that certainly as far as the, um, the 17th century is concerned, my, my, my view was uh, formed by Belloc's analysis. Yes, and I would certainly recommend uh, Belloc's histories to our listeners. The, the, the point that, Bo that Dawson makes is that Baroque and bourgeois are in direct contrast and opposition, and these words do not merely describe two different cultures, two different Weltanschauungs, but also something of a typology of the soul. So I will, I will quote from him. The bourgeois lives for money, not merely as the peasant or the soldier or even the artist often does, but in a deeper sense, since money is to him what arms are to the soldier and land is to the peasant, the tools of his trade and the medium through which he expresses himself, so that he often takes an almost disinterested pleasure in his wealth because of the virtuosity he has displayed in his financial operations. In short, the bourgeois is essentially a money maker at once its servant and its master, and the development of his social ascendancy shows the degree to which civilization and human life are dominated by the money power. 
This is why St Thomas and his masters, both Greek and Christians, look with so little favour on the bourgeois, for they regarded money simply as an instrument and therefore held that the man who lives for money perverts the true order of life. Sorry, business, says St Thomas, considered in itself as a certain baseness, turpitudo, turpitudo, inasmuch as it does not of itself involve any honourable or necessary end. Now, according to, he then quotes Sombart, the French sociologist, that there is a bourgeois type that corresponds to certain def definite psychological predispositions. And this is to be opposed to the Baroque type. This is particularly obvious in the case of St. Francis and the medieval mystics, who appropriated to their use the phraseology of medieval erotic poetry and used the anti-bourgeois concepts of the chivalrous class consciousness, such as Adele, noble and genteel, in order to define the spiritual character of the true mystic. It is indeed impossible to find a more complete example in the history of the opposition of Sombart's two types than in the contrast of the culture of the Counter-Reformation lands with that of 17th century Holland and 18th century England and Scotland and North America. The Baroque culture of Spain and Italy and Austria is the complete social embodiment of Sombart's erotic type. It is not that it was a society of nobles and peasants and monks and clerics which centred in palaces and monasteries, or even palace monasteries like the Escorial, and left a comparatively small place to the bourgeois and the merchant. It is not merely that it was an uneconomic culture which spent its capital lavishly, recklessly and splendidly, whether to the glory of God or for the adornment of human life. It was rather that the whole spirit of the culture was passionate and ecstatic and finds its supreme expressions in the arts of music and its religious mysticism. We have only to compare Bernini with the brothers Adam or St. Teresa with Hannah More to feel the difference in the spirit and rhythm of the two cultures. The bourgeois culture has the mechanical rhythm of a clock, the baroque the musical rhythm of a fugue or a sonata. The ideal of the bourgeois culture is to maintain a respectable average standard. Its maxims are honesty is the best policy, do as you would be done by, the greatest, greatest happiness for the greatest number. But the Baroque spirit lives in and for the triumphant moment of creative ecstasy. It will have all or nothing. Its maxims are all for love and the world well lost. What dost thou seek, O my soul? All is thine, all is for thee. Do not take less, nor rest with the crumbs that fall from the table of thy father. Go forth and exult in thy glory. Hide thyself in it and rejoice, and thou shalt obtain all the desires of thy heart. End quote. The conflict between these two ideals of life and forms of culture runs through the whole history of Europe from the Reformation to the Revolution and finds its political counterpart in the struggle between Spain and the Protestant powers. It is hardly too much to say that if Philip II had been victorious over the Dutch and the English and the Huguenots, modern bourgeois civilization would never have developed and capitalism, insofar as it existed, would have acquired an entirely different complexion. So thank you for allowing me to quote Dawson at length there. Yes, uh, well, that seems to be a, a, a very typical of uh, Christopher Dawson in a somewhat aristocratic view uh, um, and disdainful view. Um, I, I, I feel that that um, introduces uh, too much of a sort of class uh, 
analysis into it. It's, it's a sort of a aristocratic uh, counterpart to Marxism, uh, uh, attributing these uh, deep um, um, historical forces to, to class. Uh, I'm a bit unhappy with that. Um, is it not possible to be a, a Baroque bourgeois, uh, a, a Baroque baker, for example? Uh, I, I think so, yes. I, I, think, I think he's making a, a kind of rhetorical point almost, and a true Catholic society, of course, has a place for the merchant, for the burger. Classic Whigs were, were, were the um, uh, British aristocrats and landowners. So um, what Dawson regards as the, as the bourgeois mentality is, is not, uh, is not uh, confined to the bourgeois by class. Well, quite. So that's what I was trying to tease out, that the bourgeois is, is not just a, a, social stra- a social class, but it is a spirit and a Baroque spirit. So the Baroque spirit is not the exclusive domain of the nobility and the, the bourgeois spirit, the exclusive domain of the, the bourgeois. But uh, yes, if you look at the, you know, the, the magnificent guild halls of, of Spanish Flanders and the, the sacralization of the 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 world of the merchant in in that sphere um, I think you can see that the bourgeois can be redeemed and have its place in a Catholic society so as we draw this this interview to to the final stages I did want to hear from you about the the culture of the Rococo which is sometimes called late Baroque but basically the enduring Catholic development of Catholic civilization in the German-speaking lands in the 18th century, and its expression in the the exuberant, playful, utterly extravagant Rococo architecture, particularly of Bavaria and the the wonderful pilgrim churches there. And you write that this is one of the last places that the the authentic development of, of Catholic civilization could, could be observed? Yes, um, I, think, uh, I think the achievement of Rococo has been rather un- un- underestimated because um, Germany after the um, Thirty Years' War was very much an impoverished society. Early 18th century uh, Germany was, was, was badly impoverished. And yet it produces this explosion of the most incredible creativity. Now, you, you, you should ask yourself, why should this have happened in Germany and not in, in Italy, for example? Uh, it's, it's a most extraordinary expression of uh, Catholic uh, joyfulness and vitality. So uh, I'm, I'm a great fan of, uh, of uh, Southern German Rococo, religious Rococo. Uh, both in the churches and the ordinary domestic architecture, I think I think it's a uh, an example of of a uh, uh, a marvelous a marvelous spirit in society and one which perhaps hasn't been sufficiently valued. I agree. I think there is a certain puritanical spirit that really is repelled by the the joyful exuberance of. Rococo architecture, but it proclaims the nature of, of Christian religion as a celebration, expresses the joy of the baptized, 
these wonderful pilgrimage churches that are that uh, the the Wieskirche, for example, that one historian described as as God's ballroom. The, yes. These are wonderful places, and I think you're exactly right to link it with with domestic architecture. I can think of very few places where high culture, the very peak, peaks of high culture and low culture, the gap is so small. In fact, they're nearly the same thing. The same peasant craftsmen, stuccoists, architects carpenters you know who adored who painted beautiful murals in on village inns and so on would also decorate these beautiful uh, pilgrimage churches absolutely and and it shows the the harmony of the catholic society at that time yes uh and i what i say in my book is is that uh, you 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 get a survival of of uh, that um Catholic culture and an, an indication of what it might have been in the whole of, in the whole of Europe from those little pockets those little po cultural pockets of Austria Bavaria the the ecclesiastic, ecclesiastical principalities because by that time um, Italian culture had, had um, well it would be, it, be too much to say that it, it, it had collapsed but it, it had certainly lost a great deal of the energy that it, it had had in the 17th century. And in France, uh, Rococo is, is simply an expression of frivolity. Whereas um, uh, uh, in, in Southern Germany, in Catholic Germany, it was an expression of, of true Catholic vitality. Yes, and deep piety, and the two get conflated, and therefore Rococo as a whole gets dismissed, rather than that distinction being made, as you say, where in, in in Germany, it is a predominantly a form of religious art, this period style. And it's quite poignant. I, was, I, I did a tour of the Rococo churches two years ago to consider that in De Wieskirche, in St. Gallen, in Ottobeuren, some of these places, the, the stucco was dry. And within 50 years, you had the, the mediatization of the Holy Roman Empire and the, the secularization of De Kloster. It's quite tragic that flowering came to an end. Yes, as I say, it's it's an expression of what what might have been in in European culture, uh, and it wasn't precisely because it was it was overwhelmed by this whole uh, rationalistic movement, which in Germany uh, already produced the uh, Febronian movement in the in the um, uh, in the Catholic Church. And 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 a rationalistic and basically anti-clerical movement, which which was um, uh, which was present even before the uh, the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. Well, I think that is a, a great note on which to to finish. Unless there is anything else that you would like to mention, Mr. Sear. Uh, well, uh, your um, uh, questions have been extremely wide-ranging. And uh, uh, it uh, it would be very difficult to, to, to really do justice to them. I, I, I don't think I should uh, try and uh, venture anything more. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for your insights offered. And I would urge the listeners to purchase your book, uh, Phoenix from the Ashes, and your other books. I will put the link in the description of this video.